Hi there, this is Pastor Aaron of Fairview Cornerstone Baptist Church, and we pray that through the preaching of God's Word that you were encouraged and pointed to Christ, our glorious Savior. If you have any questions or comments, uh, you can find us at www.fairviewcornerstone.com, and uh, please write to us. We'd love to uh, hear any questions or comments. We pray the Lord encourage you through this sermon. With me, and we will read our uh, our focal passage this morning in Luke chapter six, as we continue the Sermon on the Mount, as Luke has recorded it for us in his gospel record, and uh, somewhat of the condensed version from what Matthew records, but nonetheless the very words of Christ given to our uh, instruction and to our uh, building up. And so let us uh, pick up then at verse 27, and we'll read the same section we read last week down to 36. So this is Luke 6:27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies, and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. So if you think about somebody that was a boxer training to to box. Uh, We know that someone who is desiring to box inevitably will find themselves in the fighting ring. They will find themselves in a moment of conflict, and what they must do is be preparing for that moment. They must learn offensive techniques. They must learn defensive techniques um, to the point where they become instinctive to them. And they no doubt would seek out someone who is a master in this field, who can teach them the, the, the right uh, methods of defense, the right methods of offense, and uh, can instruct them in how to be fit and to be in shape, to compete. And as we consider the words of Jesus here, in many ways he stands as the master, as the one who is going to prepare his disciples for times of conflict, for times when they would be severely uh, persecuted to the point of even many of them losing their lives. And and Jesus is, is telling them, you will certainly come into conflict as a follower of me. And uh, we know this takes many forms in our life. Uh, in North America, we We don't see it on as much a physical level, but nonetheless, persecution happens. 
because of the name of Jesus Christ. So it's not a matter of if we will face oppositions or if we will find ourselves in conflict, but it's a matter of when. And so Jesus gives his disciples instructions on how they are to engage in combat, how they are to respond to their enemies. He gives these portraits of true Christian love, even in the midst of severe opposition. And last week we looked at four of them, and they were all offensive. They were all uh, principles that we are to be actively doing in conflict. And so you, you might think of a boxer that they are going to have certain maybe jabs, or I don't know much of a boxer, but you know, certain punches that are going to be offensive uh, weapons in the, in the arena. And they need to master those. And Jesus gives us four offensive weapons that when we come into conflict, when we find ourselves uh, with an enemy perhaps, what we are to do. And first of all, he says, you're to love your enemies. And immediately we realize Jesus has a very different uh, ethic when it comes to engaging in combat. First, we're to love. Secondly, we're to actively be doing good to them. Thirdly, we are to bless them and not curse them. And this has to do with our words we saw last week, that instead of using our words to, to tear down and to destroy, that even those who are, we are in conflict with, we are told to bless and to use our words to build up and to offer truth and life. And fourthly, Jesus says we're to be praying for those who abuse. And so we have our offensive moves as Christians that we are to love, we are to do good, we are to bless, we are to pray. And this is how the Christian engages in conflict and with his enemy. And then Jesus comes to what we might say maybe more of a, uh, of a defensive response, more passive. He, it's not so much uh, now what we are to do, but what we are to not do, that Jesus begins to instruct his disciples. And for me, I found trying to study this and understand what Jesus really means um, very difficult. And maybe part of that is because of our North American mindset, where we very much want to uphold our rights, and we want to stand upon, uh, you know, the, the, the liberties that we have as Canadian citizens, and, and, and no doubt that plays into it uh, even for myself, but that also there, there's a lot of questions that this raises when we talk about what not to do, because there are many situations that I began to think about, what do we do in that situation, and we'll try to explore uh, some of those things as well. But first of all, we find Jesus say that on verse 29, to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. And so there is this instruction as to what we don't do, that someone slaps you on the face. He says you, 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 you do something, but it's not to retaliate. It's to actually turn the other cheek for them. Someone profits at, at uh, a cost to you. They, they steal something from you. And instead of stealing back, um, we are actually to respond in generosity. Very strange way 
of dealing with abuse. Naturally speaking, it makes no sense to us. It, it, it seems completely opposite to what we would want to do. And um, there's all kinds of examples that we would look in our society as, as they praise the one who can one-up their opponent, who can outdo them in maybe their crime or their offense. And Jesus says, no, we don't outdo them in evil, but in good. So before we dive into this, uh, there's something that we, we need to keep in mind. And um, you may have heard the word hermeneutics before. Uh, it has nothing to do with a guy named Herman. Hermeneutics is simply the principle by which we interpret Scripture. And we all, we all come to Scripture and apply some kind of hermeneutic as we want to interpret it properly. And it's one of the greatest challenges for us as Christians is to how do we faithfully interpret the Word of God. And one of the, the principles of, of hermeneutics, when we look at a passage like this, is to be careful of two ditches when we come to these kinds of passages. On one ditch, you will take the words of Jesus too literally, too literally, that you will take what he's saying to the nth degree in a literal sense and possibly be in danger of missing the essence of what he is getting at. So that's one ditch, taking it too literally. And we see this in Scripture happen, happen a lot of times. Um, you could even back up and look at the Beatitudes. And if you were to take these words to their nth degree, literally what Jesus is saying, blessed are the poor, blessed are the hungry, blessed are you who weep, then you might conclude, well, I should seek after poverty, I should never eat and just remain in a constant state of hunger, and I should never expose myself to anything that might make me laugh because I'm supposed to be weeping all the time. And if you take that approach to Jesus' words, you're going to miss the point, right? And we've looked at that. Um, we think of the example maybe of Nicodemus, and Jesus tells Nicodemus, listen, if you want to uh, be part of the kingdom, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. And Nicodemus, he's thinking, he'll say, born again? Okay, so if I take that literally, you are actually suggesting that I would go back into my mother's womb and somehow be born again like Jesus? That's crazy. He says, no, Nicodemus, you're missing the point. This is a spiritual work of the Spirit that must happen. Don't take it so literally. Um, in, in John 6, this, uh, Jesus is preaching and he is exposing the people's desire for a free meal as opposed to Christ as true bread and true drink. And this great multitude has gathered there after eating the, the fish and the loaves and they're wanting another meal. And Jesus tells them, unless you eat my flesh and unless you drink my blood, you have nothing to do with me. And they are horrified that Jesus, a Jewish rabbi, would be condoning uh, cannibalism? Jesus, that's awful. That's horrendous. You, you, are, you, are, you are messed up. And they, they leave and the disciples are standing there scratching their heads and Jesus says, listen guys, don't take it so literally. I am talking about spiritual realities. I am talking about spiritual truth. And so there is a danger for us to take the words of Christ at times too literally and miss the essence of what he's saying. But the other side, especially in a passage like this, and you start to see this, tensioning, this tension develop, the other danger would be to reason away what Jesus is saying to the point where it has no application for our lives. The fact of the matter is Jesus is talking about 
real cheeks on real faces with real hands slapping them. He's talking about real shirts that people are stealing and real goods that people possess. And he's instructing us on how to use them. And so we don't want to avoid that reality either. Um, And the scripture is full of these uh, tensions at times. And uh, I know for myself, there's a desire to to eliminate them or to try to just go to one extreme. And we, we, we must sometimes maintain them. And it, this is why we need one another as a body, that we can continually sharpen one another. And I, I thought of the example of, of a guitar. Um, obviously, these strings are, they have a fair amount of tension on them. And when there is tension, it can produce a lot of, of nice sounds, music. And, uh, and yet the wood might be crying out here for a little bit of uh, less tension. If you take the tension off, you know, it might be a little easier on the grain, but pretty soon you have nothing at all but a really annoying sound. So keep that in mind as we work through these kinds of passages that there are tensions, and, and it makes it difficult at times to understand what Jesus means, but we need to continually press to the heart of the matter. So I've got, first of all, three things that I believe Jesus is not saying here. Um, three things that I don't think it would be right to conclude as a result of this turning the other cheek principle. And in the context, it's important to keep in mind that Jesus is talking to, first of all, his disciples. And you remember, just previously, he is talking about a type of persecution that comes on the account of the Son of Man. So I think there is a specific application here to the type of persecution and abuse that comes because you are a follower of Jesus Christ. And... um, And so there's some things I think that it would be wrong to conclude here. And first of all, it would be wrong to say that Jesus is telling us to be indifferent to evil and wickedness. It would be wrong to conclude from this passage that Jesus is telling us we're to be indifferent to evil and wickedness in our life, in the world. That is not what Jesus is teaching. Um... Don Carson, one commentator, he said, it is good, it is a good question whether Jesus, sorry, it is a good question whether Jesus meant it absolutely literally or was he using striking examples to make people think. Obviously, Jesus was not promoting the kind of thoughtless generosity to any lazy scrounger which would simply confirm them in their ways. Things are here stated in absolute terms and other Christian principles must also be taken into consideration. So Jesus is not teaching an indifference to evil, to injustice, or to wickedness. But rather, he is instructing his disciples on how they are to respond when they themselves become the objects of that evil. And um, flip over for a moment to Romans 12, because it's... It's so amazing to see as we get the, word, the teachings of Jesus and then you see how these teachings shaped the 
teaching of the apostles and the disciples in their letters to the churches. And you see this, this beautiful harmony with what's being said. And sometimes as an apostle or uh, here Paul states it in a little different way, it might help us to understand the heart of the matter. In Romans 12, verse 17, we read, well, I'll just back up to uh, verse 14. You'll see the whole, the whole parallel here. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. And he quotes from Proverbs 25 there. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And you see what, what Paul is doing there. He's obviously using this teaching of Jesus and how the Christian is to respond to evil, to injustice, to abuse, but he is not disregarding the fact that there is evil and there is wickedness. That is not the instruction to the Christian to just be indifferent to wickedness. We are to hate wickedness. We are to, to hate the injustices of our day. We should turn on the news at times and read of people committing horrendous crimes and getting off with a few years in prison. And there should be something within us that says that is wrong. This is an outrage. Somebody needs to stand upon justice in our day. That is a good Christian response. But listen to what Paul says. He says, the reason that we don't take revenge for ourselves, it's not that we're indifferent to evil, but rather we understand that it is God who will punish the unjust. I am not the one to bring judgment ultimately upon the wicked. But Paul says we leave it to the wrath of God. God has promised vengeance is his. He will repay so Jesus isn't saying be indifferent to evil, but he is saying that we do not take it upon ourselves to seek revenge or to punish ultimately those who offend us. It's always striking when you watch children in a disagreement or say one brother hits one upside the head because he's taking his Lego. And the response of the other one who's been hit is to react with at least twice the force that he was hit with. You know, it's like, if you're going to slap me, then I'm going to take this chair and break it over your head in order to retaliate. That is our human instinct, isn't it? And we see that in the world, that if, if we have been slightly wronged, you know, my coffee at McDonald's is too hot and I burn my lip, I'm going to turn around and sue McDonald's for $10 million because they have so greatly offended me. This, Jesus says, must not be so for the Christian. We don't retaliate back. 
with equal or greater vengeance. But we are a people who entrust ourselves to God, that he will repay. But again, I would say Jesus is not teaching it's wrong to confront evil and wickedness through God-given means. Does this mean that a Christian never confronts evil or seeks justice in this life? No, that would be foolish. Um, even in John 18, 23, Jesus is on trial and, and one of the, the guards strike him in the face. And Jesus says in John 18, 23, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Jesus speaks out and exposes the injustice of him being hit. He says, listen, if what I just said was deserving of a punch to the face, then fine, point it out. Otherwise, you're hitting me without cause. And in that sense, Jesus is exposing the lawlessness of his attacker. And that is not wrong. This too. Acts 22, 27, you'll remember the time when Paul is dragged before the authorities and they're about to, to, uh, to, uh, to unleash their fury upon Paul and to whip him. And Paul points out to the guard, he says, listen, did you realize that I'm a Roman citizen? And as a Roman citizen, you actually can't do that to me. And they are terrified that they just about beat a Roman citizen in an unlawful manner. Paul uses the law and the justice system of his day to expose wickedness. And I think that is a good principle for us to keep in mind. It is not wrong to use the God-given means to promote justice and um, the punishment of those who are violating the laws. You could think of an extreme example of, say, a woman who is in an abusive situation is Jesus implying that she is to just day after day allow her husband to, to, to beat her, to harm her without ever confronting that evil? Absolutely not. That is not what Jesus is saying. He, I think it would be for, a, for a, a woman in that situation, there are God-given means in our society where we can confront that kind of wickedness. It should come to the church, especially if such a person is professing to be a follower of Jesus Christ. They should be brought before the church and say, listen, you cannot treat another image bearer of God, another child of the king this way. You are violating the king. You are offending a holy God. You need to stop. You need to repent. And, and women, you are never wrong to bring that into the light. It must be brought into the light. And to use the God-given means of, of police officers or a justice system that will stand behind you. Uh, Lord willing, you know, we, we see at times um, the breakdown of maybe our justice system. But, but I think if we're honest, we have to admit we still have a great level of uh, liberty in our land. You know, we, I, I had, um, for some weird reason, our back windshield was... was uh, I don't think anyone broke it. I think it just, maybe our cat and dog were being silly and it was broke, so I had to do a, an incident report. And it was just encouraging that something as silly and, and, and minor as that, that I would get a call from a police officer and he would just say, okay, I just you know, want to know what's going on. I just want to make sure you guys are, you know, you're feeling safe and just to follow up in that way. And, and there's a sense of blessing in that. And we should be grateful to God that we can use those means to confront wrong. And so... Um, Absolutely, we should be using God-given means to expose and address evil and wickedness in our day. 
Um, but I think, for example, that woman in an abusive situation, what is Jesus getting at? What's the difference then between the Christian and the non-Christian? I had to think of a silly song by the, uh, the, the Dixie Chicks of all people. I'm um, sorry, that's, <laughs> they're thinking less of me now. But um, the song, I think it was called Earl, that Earl had to die, right? And um, the, 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 the basic message of the song is that there is a, a, a guy and a girl, and they fall in love, and they get married. But in time, Earl starts to abuse his wife. And so what does she do? She gets her friends together, and they come up with a plan to take Earl out. And, and they, they kill him, put him, I think, in the trunk of a car and dispose of his body. And you listen to a song like that and you're thinking, okay, on the one hand, I'm kind of glad Earl's gone because he was a jerk and he did deserve justice. But on the other hand, do two evils make a right? Is it right for them, and I know it's just a silly song, but I think it is an illustration of the mindset of the world, that if we find ourselves in an abusive situation, then we are now justified to turn around and show just as much or greater abuse to the one who has offended us. And Christ would say, no, uphold justice, uphold righteousness. But when you're given the opportunity to, to bring as much suffering upon them as they brought upon you, you say, no, I choose to overcome with good and with grace and with mercy. And just a month ago, you may have seen the girl who testified against an asexual abuser um, among many other women who were abused. Was it wrong for her to testify in court against him? Absolutely not. That is upholding the, the dignity of human life. That is upholding God's own character that, that such wickedness would be exposed. And she testified against him. But then she turned around and said, but you know what? I forgive you. And then she shares the gospel with him that he might be saved and forgiven. That is how Christians do combat. And I hope that you see Jesus is not telling us it's wrong to expose wickedness or injustice. But when given opportunity to show retribution, we overcome with good. And the third thing I think Jesus is not saying here is this is not Jesus giving instruction to a government or to a judicial system or to even the corporate world to a degree. If a government was to implement these sorts of things, then wickedness would run, run rampant, obviously. God has established government, we find in Romans 13, to punish the wicked and to uphold justice. And so we have to keep uh, some of those things in tension. There are historically divisions over this very thing. Is it right for a Christian to go to war or not? And you have, on one hand, the pacifists and the activists, and it's going to depend on how you understand these principles, how, how you're able to keep some of these issues in tension. Uh, personally, I see the government has a responsibility to uphold justice, and so at times, if there is injustice and they have the ability to, uh, to come to the aid, like we think of World War II, when, when there was, out of necessity, the call to confront Hitler and what he was doing with means of war, I personally believe that is a God-given mandate to governments. And so as a Canadian citizen... If I am needed to aid in that, 
Um, I am not violating God's good plan for us as his people. And you're going to, I imagine in this room, we would, even on that issue, come to different conclusions, but you need to wrestle through all the tensions there. So what is Jesus saying? I'm just going to read one pastor. I was uh, listening to a bit on this subject. He brought this very beautiful parallel that I found very helpful. As we consider as Christians, how, how does this play itself out? How do we engage in combat? How did Christ engage in combat? That is the question. And as we consider how Christ himself engaged, how he conquered, how he overcame, then we are called to, to live that out in our lives. And there's this amazing picture in Revelation 5 where John is upset because there is no one worthy to open the scroll with the seven seals and he's weeping. And then the, uh, the elder says to him, stop weeping, John. Listen, behold, uh, in Revelation 5, Five, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll. And there's almost this anticipation, okay, here is one who's going to conquer. Here is the Davidic king. Here is the one who's going to overthrow evil. And here is the one who is going to reign in power and in strength. But then as John turns and looks, we're told the between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And it seems like this really strange paradox. How can the lion, the Davidic king, the conqueror, be a lamb that is slain? It would seem that the two cannot possibly be together. But then as we consider the work of Christ this is how he overcame. He didn't overcome with raw force or military strength. He came by laying down his rights and offering his life. He was not denying what evil deserves, the fullness of God's wrath forever and ever. That is what our evil deserves. Jesus was not indifferent to that, but instead of of bringing that upon us like we deserved, he instead steps in front of the wrath of God and he says, I will take the blow. I will absorb the wrath of God into myself and this is how I fight. This is how I overcome. And we know the victory was secured in the resurrection as God raised him from the dead. And so Jesus looks to us as Christians and he says, listen, when you find yourself in combat, when you find yourself in struggle and someone strikes you across the cheek, you, are, you have been violated. The way that you overcome is not with equal retaliation, but by laying down your rights and doing good, blessing, extending grace, showing kindness. And Secondly, when you not only maybe are, are violated, when you're struck in the face, maybe someone's profiting at your expense. You don't try to outdo them in their swindling, but rather you outdo them in generosity. And in this way, we overcome. And Jesus makes it clear this is not just for those that we love, not just for our family members, but for everyone, even for our enemies, that the world extends this kind of giving to a degree, but Jesus says, but you, 
Do it without reason. Do it without expectation of material benefit and your Father in heaven will reward you. Um, we're coming up, coming up even on, on tax season and you might feel like there is unjust taxes being up, placed upon me and that I, I would have a right to complain about this, but as Christians, I think there would be a different response and that yes, let's acknowledge if there is and we can use the God-given means to address things, but let us not be given over to complaining. Let us not be given over to anger as the world, but let us rejoice that great is our reward in heaven where neither moth nor rust can destroy. We must do combat differently. We must battle like lambs and not like people holding on to their rights. One of my favorite stories, I don't actually know if the author was a Christian or not, but the story of, of uh, Jean Valjean. And I haven't actually seen the latest movie because I'm assuming they bring in a lot of trash into it, I don't know, but uh, I always, I'm always scared to reference movies. But this is a book first. But in the story of, of uh, Les Miserables, Jean Valjean is a hardened criminal and he finds himself at the mercy of a priest who shows kindness to him, feeds him, houses him for the night. And in the night, Jean Valjean takes silver from his house and he intends to steal it. But in the morning, the, 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 the guards catch him and they're not quite sure what, what has happened. They know this stuff belongs to the priest and so they bring the priest up and they say, okay, um, is he guilty? Did he steal this from you? What's going on? And, and, uh, and Jean Valjean knows at that point he's caught. He's, he's done. This priest can send him away for life, maybe even have him executed for this crime. But the priest doesn't exercise his right. Instead, he implies to the guards that he actually had given him the silver, and then he rebukes Jean Valjean for having forgotten some pieces and he goes back home and he gets the rest of his silver and he brings it and gives it to him and sends him on his way and as a result if you know the story his life is transformed by that grace by that kindness and he begins looking at life very differently to the point where at the end of his of the story he has an opportunity to kill a man who has hunted him and made life miserable for him. But instead, he says, no, I will not do it. I, I, I will not take this opportunity to destroy you. And he shows mercy to the man. And of course, as a result, the man can't handle that kind of mercy. And he ends up taking his own life. And it's obviously a very a well-known story. But where do those themes come from? Why does our culture acknowledge that as an honorable thing? It is because it is Christ-like. It is Christ-like. He has come and given when we had nothing to offer. And I'll leave you with 1 Peter 1.23. And so it's hard. We'll have to think through different situations in our life as to how we respond. But underneath it all, there should be this mentality of the Lamb who overcomes with good. And we find Peter say this of Jesus Christ in 1 Peter 1.23. 
I'm sorry, 2.23. 2.23, it says, back up to 21, for to you this has been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And so we are to walk as Christ walked, like David not taking those opportunities of revenge and retribution against Saul, but entrusting himself to God and showing kindness and mercy even to our enemies. Let us be marked by such a response. And if you're here this morning and you have not received the offer of Christ, if you have not placed your faith upon him, his finished work on the cross, that, that your wickedness, your evil against God can be washed, as we sang this morning, that that, that, that blood that ran red, it, it washes our sins white as snow. Then turn to Christ. Turn to him. Do not abide under the wrath of God, but receive the free gift of Christ to all who will believe and be baptized as an act of obedience and faith. Let's pray. God in heaven, thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit, God, because we know apart from your spirit, there is no way we could ever make any sense of your word. Father, that there are paradoxes and there are things that confound us in our natural thinking. Lord, to show grace when we've been wrong, to show mercy when we've been offended, to show generosity when we've been taken advantage of. Lord, that you would work these attitudes into our heart. And Lord, we pray that you would continue to show us ways in which we have offended you, Lord, and one another, that we would walk in repentance. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you for tuning in today to the sermon uh, preached at Fairview Cornerstone Baptist Church. And again, if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can write to us at church at fairviewcornerstone.com. God bless.